Welcome back to another episode of the Next Level Minds podcast. My name is Chris Chapman, and I am your host. And if this is your first time tuning in with us, and this is a podcast dedicated to those who want to reach a next level in their business, personal, or career life, every other week, I'm blessed to sit down with a fully qualified guest, entrepreneur, content creator, or mover or shaker in their industry, and really walk through their story how they've gotten from point A to point B and overcame various adversities along the way. Now, before we dive into this week's episode, I want to reiterate my main goal, which is to impact over 1 million people. So if you've not done this already, please take the time to subscribe to Next Level Minds on Apple Podcast. Share this episode with a family member, friend, or colleague. And if you're really feeling special, be sure to leave a review of Next Level Minds and let me know what you think. Now on to today's guest. I'm sitting down with Michelle Johnson, who is an executive leadership coach with over 20 years of experience. She has consulted and coached some of the top leaders in the world. So I'm very excited to dive in and talk with her about connection, purpose, culture, leadership, and her new book, which is The Seismic Shift in Leadership, which is an Amazon bestseller. Other than that, as we like to say here at Next Level Minds, your mindset is your greatest weapon for the battle of success. Michelle, thank you so much for hopping on the Next Level Minds podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I've really been looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. I know we were talking about how cool your background is before we hopped on here. So a couple of things I want to ask you about. How long have you been in New Orleans? I know that's where you live. Yeah, 25 years. I fell hard when I was in graduate school and came down for an internship in the consulting world. And I mean, I fell hard in love with this city. What What do you like most about it? I thought it, and I still think it does, it has tremendous soul. Nice. And and it's really quite celebrated to be your own person. It's not cool to be a cookie cutter down here. <laughs> Everyone's is kind of the individuality yes. side of things. That's yes. cool. Yes. Uh, do you have a favorite meal in New Orleans? You know, I love white chocolate bread pudding. And Ooh. Palace Cassette Cafe is owned by Dickie Brennan. And the white chocolate bread pudding is amazing. Nice. I'll have to try that if I, if I go back and visit that area. So, um, so I'd love if you could touch on your background a little bit. I, I know you're an executive coach. You've written a fantastic book, um, Seismic Leadership, right? And I think you have a strong mission behind what you do, but I would love if you could kind of give a brief background, maybe around 25, 30 years old, kind of how you started to, to venture uh, more into the space. Yeah, I fell in love when I was recruited to New Orleans by the consulting firm called Spectra, and it doesn't exist anymore, but um, it was a communication consulting firm that they delivered workshops. And um, so I was able to travel the country delivering workshops on presentation skills, meeting Mm -hmm. management, teamwork, listening, and I loved it. And then they also did these huge transformational interventions with companies, vision, mission, values. I mean, I just... I not only fell in love with the city, I fell in love with the work. And then I was so young, I was only 22, 23. And they said, you really should get a PhD. 
So I ended up getting a PhD at LSU and continuing, you know, all in communication and organizational dynamics. And I ended up getting recruited by Loyola. So I became an academic, even though that was not Hmm. why I got my PhD. I got my PhD to be a management consultant. But at the time I thought, oh, wow, I can do it all. I can teach business communication in the business school and be a consultant. And so I've been juggling that for many years. And and then finally, when I lifted my head up and I had enough maturity and expertise and experience, I became an executive coach. And that's where where really, I mean, I found um, what brings me tremendous joy is I, I work with right now about 15 CEOs primarily. And it's just to, just to be able to, to help and support um, these high level executives in their communication and connection and their leadership. Le- so much of leadership, Chris, as we know, it really does revolve around how are your team skills? How are your connection skills? How are your motivational skills? How do you run a meeting? How do you present? And so I'm, I feel very blessed that I had all this these years of training to help the, the leaders that I coach. Absolutely. And and you think it, it kind of all started from, from the workshops and stuff? Yes, exactly. Yes. I loved it because, you know, you when you're leading and facilitating workshops like that and you're working with all these different companies, it really is data collection. Mm. You're collecting all this data of what works in running a meeting, what does not work, what works in strategic high-level presentations, what does not work. Um, What works for being a good team player? What doesn't work? And so, yeah, I think that's where I started collecting the data and really started realizing what effective leadership looked like. And then about five years ago, started writing my book that was just published last year. Nice. That's awesome. And I love how it started kind of at the ground level of you doing these workshops and getting involved and kind of seeing the impact that it can have. And then you've like naturally started to do, you know, the management consulting, the executive coaching, the books, all that. Um, and I love hearing stories of just a natural progression like that to kind of the more end goal, quote unquote, if you will. That said, along that journey, I mean, what setbacks, adversities? I know with the Next Level Minds podcast, the listeners like to get insights of how, you know, the guest overcame struggles and setbacks. I know everyone listening, including myself, including yourself, may have had some struggles that they've recently dealt with, or it could have been a while back. So I I always like to ask the guests, like, what are some maybe key failures that yet you learned from? Absolutely, Chris. That's a great question. And one of my key discoveries in my research that I put in my book, chapter two, was giving up perfection, is that leaders who try to be perfect uh, themselves and they 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 demand perfection from their people. They inadvertently, because again, I call them jerk bosses, and I kind of feel bad about posting about jerk bosses because at the end of the day, I don't think they're jerks. I think they're bosses who are so demanding and they're leading from a way that they thought was what they're supposed to lead. Like they're supposed to be perfect. So they demand perfection and they inadvertently create a culture of fear. Mm. So that's what I was seeing a lot of. And I realized, oh my gosh, perfection equals disconnection. And when I was looking at the seismic shift in leadership, this old model of command and control and unbelievably de- demanding and unrelenting standards, and I was seeing the, the toxic cultures that it was leaving in its wake. And what I realized at that point was, oh, my gosh, I had been like that. You know, I had been somebody who believed that you were supposed to um, be perfect. 
and never let them see you sweat and never give up your power. And I was just working with Kraft Heinz last week, and they're an extraordinary company with great vision and values and team environment and leadership training. And I was so impressed. And and we were talking about how important it is to to give up perfection and, and some of the scripts that we have in our head. And I told them a story about me as a professor. And I, I wish I could I could contact and track down some of the students in my class that day because I'm sure they didn't forget it. It was a stadium style classroom and the lecture of the day was about nonverbal communication. And I was in a, a you know navy blue suit and and appropriate heels, you know, and, and the scripts in my head was I had to be the authoritative figure who knew all of the answers, who lectured on hours and would never let them see you sweat and would never give up power. And all of a sudden, I'm excited about what I'm talking about. And my heel goes flying across the stage onto the floor. And rather than laughing about it as a human being, as a normal human being would, and as I would in this day and age, I pretended like it didn't happen. And I just wobbled <laughs> over to, you know, to where my shoe landed. I did not laugh. I did not smile. I put that shoe back on and I went right back into lecturing like nothing happened. And, and so that was a real stumble in my life is that I just didn't give myself permission to be a real authentic person. And so there was a there was a wall up between me and the students. And, and so I didn't connect with them much. I literally just walked in, lectured and left. And that's not that, you know, when you think about leaders today, we want leaders to create environments where people can thrive, positive environments where people can thrive. Well, the leader, you know, a professor is a leader of their classroom. I don't know if I was creating a positive environment where my students could thrive because I thought it was all about power. You know what I'm saying? So that was a real stumble of mine. And now um, as I'm you know, much older in my career, I mean, I was probably 28 years old back then. And, and now I can be human and it feels so much better to just be me. I like that you mentioned that. And I'm just trying to picture... The, the imagery there of the heel flying and you're like scrambling, but trying to act like nothing's wrong type of thing. So who does that? That's embarrassing. But I do tell that story on myself because that was a real stumble of mine. What would you do differently now if you had, you know, the skill sets, the processes, but you fast or you backtracked to, to 28 year old. Oh my gosh. So my heel goes flying in the middle of the lecture. And I would say, how about that? That's hysterical. And I would laugh and I'd go over and I'd say, well, I'll tell you what, 92% of a message is nonverbal. So what do you think about my heels? Clearly, you know, I mean, I would make it fun and try to bring laughter and, and just authenticity. So I did write a chapter about um, authenticity and giving up perfection in my book and, and how important it is to own your story. So you'd ask about you you use the word struggles, not just struggle or failures. And another thing that I struggled with was, again, in my quest to be perfect, I didn't reveal anything about myself ever. I, you know, I was supposed to, be, I it never, I never revealed. And so my first chapter is on owning your story. And as a leader, you need to own your story, the warts and all. And, and own your past and your childhood and the challenges and the significant life events that got you to where are, you are today. Now, I'm not saying that you're in an elevator and you're telling people this. I'm not even saying you're in a team meeting and you're telling people this unless it's an exercise where you're asked about your life event and what you learned about it. But in all this data collection of all these years, because I bring my teams and my leaders and my students 
through the exercise, tell me the significant life event that impacted the way you lead Mm -hmm. and how did you grow and learn from that? What I've learned is that we have all struggled. Nobody has had the perfect life. And the people who try to hide their imperfections or their struggles end up having a wall up and other people don't trust them because they come across as fake. Well, again, my struggle, my challenge um, was that I just, I pretended to be perfect and I didn't own my story. And so there were, there were years we moved around growing up all the time. And so there were years when people would say, are you fake? Who are you? And I couldn't understand where that was coming from, but now I do because I just didn't own who I was. I didn't talk about, I, you know, I wouldn't reveal anything about myself. I think I was just self-conscious and I wasn't comfortable enough in my own skin. So this type of work takes a lot of time and energy and it's a lot of self-reflection on your story, your childhood, your growth, how, what you learned about yourself and to in order to get stronger. And then once you go through that, then that's the first level of connection, connection with yourself, then you become a more compassionate, empathetic leader. And then you're more forgiving of other people's faults, right? It all goes together. Yeah, I was I was actually about to ask you two questions. One, if somebody is in that style that 28-year-old Michelle is was currently in, if they're in that style, how can they slowly get out to it? Is it just finding that kind of self-awareness about themselves or? Yeah, it's a lot of work. And some of the leaders that I interviewed in my book, like Juan Martin of Kind Bars, um, mm. he he had subscribed to this perfection theory. And he was that, he's still a hard charging executive. He's the global president of Kind Bars and Nature's Bakery. So he made it. But there was a point in his career where he was kind of a robot and going through the motions and acting like somebody else. And then he got an executive coach and he went to the Center for Creative Leadership and then realized, what am I doing? I'm not even real. If I'm going to truly learn how to be a great leader, I want to be happy doing it, which means that I have to accept what my strengths are. I have to lean in with my strengths, build a team to complement my blind spots. And what he realized is that he wanted to be more of a compassionate leader like his mother was. Hmm. And he had grown up in the south of Spain. So when, when Mars, which bought from Daniel Lubetsky, the kind bars, uh, Mars went around looking for one of their presidents who then could, could be kind and represent kindness. And Juan was, was the perfect candidate at the time because he had just gone through all of this work on himself. And he said, I want to lean in with kindness and compassion. I want to emulate more of my mother rather than my father, whatever he decided on. And, and so it really set him up to be chosen to represent one of the most compassionate brands we have in business right now. As a matter of fact, Kind Bars, one of his goals last year was 250 million acts of kindness. So it's not, wow. he's not just measured on how many kind bars he sells he's measured on acts of kindness so so mars really had to find a person who really was real and demonstrated true kindness and they did that in one yeah that's a really cool story i actually had no idea that that was the impact of that and and how he's measured on on actual acts of kindness so that's really cool i'm glad you shared that w- what about the other side if there's maybe an employee or even a senior level executive who's reporting to another senior level executive who has that, you know, perfection, non-authentic mentality, how can that person kind of deal with that leadership? Because I know that can be a nightmare to deal with on the other side. 
how can the person who's on the other side yeah, of that who, who's getting it? led with like the you know full force non-authentic i mean do you, do you just is, get out or what like tough because yeah. i've i've actually led discussions that ended up becoming focus group um, where I had to then take the findings to the CEO and say, do you realize this leader is the opposite of what you're saying your values are in this organization? And he is shaming women and not making it a positive environment where they can thrive. And a lot of people don't know about it. So yeah, if it's a really toxic environment and a toxic culture, you do need to speak up. And I'll never forget this one um, workshop, this meeting that I facilitated on, it was, I think it was all women and they all just became very transparent and honest and said, we need you to know that this leader is, it's, it's a very toxic, abu- emotionally abusive environment. Mm. And so I went and, and, um, and I, I definitely let somebody know higher up. So yeah, you do have to speak up and typically you go through HR. That's typically what you do to a leader. And, and if it is, if it's a leader who's creating a toxic culture, you don't want that. So, so this leader might end up hitting the goals and the results in the beginning and, and look really good on paper, but then when they become a true leader of people, it, it's just, it's not good. That's why I call them jerk bosses. Yeah. It, it's just not good. And then, you know, the turnover is going to go up and I mean, it's just going to be a nightmare and the, and the business isn't going to thrive at the end of the day. So. Correct. All of the above and turnover yeah. is huge. Retention is huge right now. For and sure. just trying to even attract great employees that align with your company and then you get them in and then to keep them and then to keep them productive and keep them satisfied and keep them motivated. I mean, leadership is hard. Let's be very honest. It is hard. And you do have to be a really savvy people person. Um, to be a good leader these days, because it's on you to create that positive environment. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, so, so your book is awesome because I think it has insights. Correct me if I'm wrong. From from 18 respected yes, leaders, is that correct? Way to go, Chris. Yes, 18 <laughs> leaders from around the world. I started in my hometown of New Orleans with some of the leaders I was coaching trying to deconstruct connection. So once I realized that there's a seismic shift, and that's what I named the book, The Seismic Shift in Leadership, and I realized, whoa, 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 okay, it's no longer all about power. It really is all about connection. Well, what in the world does that look like? What do you do? What is that? How does that change everything? And so that's when I went as a trained researcher, I went and I interviewed these 18 leaders, but I started in my home turf. And and after I would end up interview and I'd say, do you have anybody else that you would recommend? And then that's where I started going around the world, which was super, super fun. But yeah, I I wasn't an expert in this at all. You know, if you think about all of my degrees being in communication, communication is transactional. You're trying to get information from point A to point B. It's very transactional. And you try to pick the best medium to do that, right? Whether it's a telephone, an email, a text, connection's a whole different thing. Connection is is um, it's how people feel. Do they feel seen? Do they feel heard? Do they feel valued, right? Connection is an energy. It requires reciprocity. It requires a give and a take. So it's just so much more complex. And and I really had to deconstruct it by interviewing all these leaders. So I was going to say, how how did you find like why 18? How did you narrow it down? Because I mean, you type in CEO and LinkedIn, there's a million options that come up. So yeah, these are all people again, that I started with what I knew. And then and then after the each interview, I would say, is there anybody you think embodies connection? Because I'm trying to learn about this. And they would say, oh, Juan Martin of Kind Bars. Oh, the publisher of the New Orleans Advocate. Oh, um, 
Uh, Jim Mora, who coaches at the time, um, he had just been the coach at UCLA and he was on ESPN Sports Center. I mean, people would just say, oh, I'll connect you with this person. And I didn't just want leaders who were great at connection. I wanted leaders who also understood failure and disconnection and what that looked like. And so Jim Mora was one of the most interesting interviews because he was on ESPN Sports Center at the time. He's now the head football coach of the University of Connecticut. And he had been the head football coach of the Atlanta Falcons, Seattle Seahawks. And he was truly one of the very few leaders who talked a lot about disconnection, about how he would get tied up in his own ego and that would get the best of him. And then he would lose the trust of his senior leadership. And so he was so transparent and forthcoming. He said, Michelle, connection is everything. He said, and and this was the best quote ever. He said, Michelle, disconnected leaders fail. Mm. I said, mic drop right there. Yes, indeed. And so, you know, and so that's when I realized after all these interviews that we're talking about connection at three levels, connection with yourself, being really in touch with who you are, your strengths, superpowers, blind spots, your story, your struggles, so that you can show up authentically. And then you can connect successfully with your team, level two connection, which then allows you to connect with the overall organization, which is level three connection. I like it. And so it's kind of different tiers that you're. Yeah. Different going, tiers. Okay, yep. gotcha. um, so you shared two stories. Is is there any other stories in there that, that you maybe want to share for the listeners out there? Just give a little bit more of a sneak peek by chance. Yeah, absolutely. There was a um, story of Kenneth Polite. He's in the U.S. Department of Justice. He's the head of the criminal division and he mm-hmm. went to Harvard. He's from New Orleans and grew up in the poorest neighborhood by a teenage mom, barely knew his dad, and would take the bus to the streetcar all the way to Uptown, where I live, to to one of the finest schools because he went on scholarship. And then he gets this full ride. He's brilliant. Gets this full ride to Harvard, never visited, showed up on the first day, never having seen the campus. The first time it snowed, he he didn't own a sweater. Thank goodness the scholarship came with um, money for clothes, for winter clothes. And then he got his law degree at Georgetown. And and what he taught me about connection was early on, and and he was the U.S. Attorney General here in New Orleans before he went on um, and works in the Department of Justice. Whenever he would get up and he was a, you know, he's a brilliant speaker and he has to speak a lot, is that the, the audience never connects or trusts you if they think that you're just putting on a show and you're perfect. So he would talk. He really owned his story and he would talk about his half-brother getting killed by gang violence and walking into his bedroom, trying to get to know him so that he could do the eulogy at his half-brother's funeral. And he walks into the bedroom and there are just funeral pictures plastered all over the wall of all of his friends who had already died from gangs and gun violence and drugs. And he said it was so startling. And he realized that at that point that he, because he was not there yet, that he was going to be Um, an attorney general, that he was going to be a part of the solution. And that's what kind of gave him his mission. So there would be some people who probably would shy away from talking about that. A, it's painful. B, it's, are you kidding me? That was his family. His family was poor projects, teenage parents, violence all around them. And yet he owned it. And when he started owning it, then audiences really believed him and connected with him. And so that's the power of owning your story. It's beautiful. I like that. And, and I love that you mentioned that because I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, obviously hosting one. So I'm trying to get better and better. And it's like, I love the guest 
And I love the podcast hosts, especially the really successful ones who are just very authentic about how they grew up, you know, you know, the ones that are like at 25, I was broke or the, at 30, I lost everything. You know, the ones that are just very uh, honest about what it really took to get to that level. Cause I think so many people okay. broadcast their final destination, but they're not really broadcasting the in-between of all the stuff that it took to Correct. get there. I agree. Well said. So there are great stories in the book about how important it is just to own your story, own your story, own your narrative, own your brand. Let let me ask you this one. So so obviously as a leader, and I want to touch on some skill sets in a little bit uh, that leaders should work on, but obviously as a leader, you, you touched on that you should be a people person. You obviously should be empathetic. You should be there for people. But what if you're a current leader and you're going through a lot of stuff in your life? Maybe it's something with your kids or your wife or husband. And like you have to lead a team, but you have so much going on off the field. What can you do? That to is kinda... a great question, Chris, because I do have a couple of leaders that I coach that that struggle with that. They're going through really tough times and they said, I don't want to tell my teams about it. I said, I understand, you know, you're, you're not supposed to be in, in Brene Brown talks about this a lot, that authenticity is not self-disclosure. Mm. So don't get confused, right? There are very few people you should allow into your circle of trust. And remember that, you know, your your struggles are your struggles alone and allow a, only a few number of people into your circle of trust. However, if you are leading a team and and you're and you're doing some sort of team development. So so one of my leaders I was working with, I said, OK, you know, you, this is a brand new team and we need to build a cohesive team that trusts one another. We need to create psychological safety comfort. I said, so we should do the exercise, including you of owning your story. And let's talk about a significant life event. And he said, but does that mean I have to talk about mine? And I said, yeah. And I said, and I think it would really, really build what you want, that connection and trust. And that's hard for some leaders. But again, I say it because that that's an exercise that you're doing with your team to build team trust. That's not just sitting over the coffee pot saying, let me tell you about all the awful things going on in my life right now. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think the employees of the leader are really going to respect that at the end of the day and maybe even rally around a bit more to help them out with some of the things that they're dealing with. I agree. Um, okay, so skill sets leaders should work on. I feel like communication, people skills. I mean, what are some other things that they should be working on out there? Meeting management right now is the number one way that you can connect in this hybrid world. And what what upsets me and concerns me is that leaders think that they can still run meetings using Zoom or Teams or Meets um, the same way like we're in person and you just can't. And you really have to be creative. You have to figure out ways that you can connect. And, and the old thing called an icebreaker, I now call it a connection question. So for the first five minutes, when people are coming in, have a connection question posted in the chat, go around and ask people. And it can be as easy as, you know, what did you do over the weekend? Or what are your plans this weekend? What are your summer plans? You know, but at least as the leader, do something that 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 shows that you're interested in your people as humans, not just, hey, did you hit your marks? Did you hit your goal? Did you hit your numbers? And and that's what I heard during the pandemic that was really hard for people is here we were in the worst crisis ever. 
that that most of us have have lived through. And I remember I was working with Qualcomm out in San Diego, and we were we were doing a fireside chat, and everybody got my book, and we were talking about connection. And this one woman stands up at the end, and she says, "I just want to say thank you." And I was with Don McGuire, who's their chief marketing officer, and he said, "Why? That well, thank you." She said, "Because." This is, I'm in a new leadership role. Thank you for hiring me. Thank you for showing that you believe in connection because I just spent two years during lockdown and the pandemic by myself in my apartment all alone. And my leader who I spoke to every week never once asked how I was doing. Wow. And that is not an organization that I want to be a part of. So Qualcomm, thank you. Wow. That's another mic drop moment. You've had a lot of them on the show. <laughs> That's another good one. I like that. Um, and that makes sense too. I mean, I, I'm fully remote and I like if I hop on um, meetings with senior leaders, Hey, you know, how was your weekend? What'd you do? Do you do anything fun rather than just jumping right into it? Because you don't have those, you know, lack of better words, but water cooler conversations anymore. Right. So. Right. Exactly. So that's why my advice is, you know, really learn about breakout groups and how you can mm. how you can create a little bit more intimacy in small groups, especially if you're running big meetings on Zoom or on in virtual um, mode. That that's hard to connect when there's thousands on a call or when there's hundreds on the call. What I have found is that you know about five seven is pretty good. I, I'm a part of this organization called 100 Coaches. Marshall Goldsmith is the top executive coach, and he put together this organization of his his pick of the world's top coaches. So we were just on a call this morning and there's usually about 55 of us and he does a great job. He he gives the topic of the week that we're talking about. He, he's trying to teach us and mentor us and give away everything he knows. And so he'll then, you know, share his expertise and then he puts us into breakout groups. And then in, in more intimate four people in these breakout rooms, we really get to know each other. And then we get to talk about it without feeling, you know, it's hard to, to speak up in front of a big, big, group like that. It's tough. So, so my advice to leaders is really learn how you can be creative using the virtual meetings and, and build connection. Hmm. Yeah. You, you talk about build connection a lot and I know that aligns with culture. So do you have kind of some, some roadmap ways or steps that, that leaders can take to build culture? You know, that's interesting. You asked that Chris, you asked very good questions. Um, <laughs> Thank you. That is, that is going to be the, my next book. So my first book was the seismic shift in leadership. My next book is going to be the seismic shift in culture, how to build cultures of connection that drive results. So that's what I'm collecting data in right now. How the how, I think I did a good job with my first book. I presented the evident evidence that yes, there's a seismic shift that old power, command, control, unbelievably demanding, toxic work cultures doesn't work anymore. <laughs> Throw them out the window. What we need now is connection. So my next book is, okay, what exactly is the roadmap? What does it look like? How, how do you do it? That's what people are asking me now. They're like connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody thinks they're good at connection. If you're a leader, you're like, oh, I must be really good at connection. Well, some of them aren't so much. So here are some of the things that I'm learning. You can spend, all, you can, you can, put together a culture committee at your company and and they come up with really good ideas. I um I work with a company called Audubon Communities. They're in Atlanta and they do happy hours. They they do the Christmas parties where they give awards. I mean they've really they they but they've put thought into how do we build a connection and they actually go to work every day. It's not even hybrid. 
um, be what oh. we've learned is that it's rituals and rhythms. So you got to have in a company, you have to create rituals that then you embed into your rhythm. So if the ritual is once a month, happy hours, then make sure you have it on the very first Wednesday of every month and you embed it into your rhythm. If you have a big holiday party and you give away, you know, whatever you do, just embed it into your rhythm. So one of the things we were talking about is I was asking questions of them is how do you build positive culture and then how do you take it down? In other words, what kills it overnight? And I discovered something. They said, well, you know what? We could spend years and years doing the happy hours and all these events and building homes together and loving one another. But if you don't hold people accountable for what they're supposed to do, and we're all walking around saying, wait a second, why is he or she getting away with that? That just tears down the trust that you've been working so hard to build. So I call them accelerators of connection are things like having a culture committee and really embedding the rituals into your rhythm. And then things that tear down connection are lack of accountability, not holding accountable. I I like that, the rituals and rhythms. And and that's interesting about that company. You said they're going to the office every day, but they're able to still build that uh, unique and positive culture. That's really cool. It's super cool. Um, I, I do have a unique one for you because the, the listeners of the show, it's, it's very mixed. There's a lot of executives that listen to the show. There's entrepreneurs, there's business owners, there's young professionals. And I, I have this like constant debate that goes on with my startup and entrepreneur friends that they're like, Hey, you can't build generational wealth in the eight to five, even if you are an executive employee. So I don't know if you have just some thoughts on that. And I'm still kind of like in the middle on that one, but I would love since you work with so many executives, maybe to like, just give your thoughts on that as well. On building generational wealth. Just like I've heard the phrase of like, Oh, you can only build generational wealth truly if like you own your own company rather than where, and it's like, I feel like there's kind of like a A and B side of it. And I just kind of wanted to get your yeah, it's side. Interesting of because it, so. some of the CEOs that I coached, uh, like the one in Audubon communities, he built it, you know, and he's a true entrepreneur. Yeah. And, and, and he's done extremely well. And then some of the other CEOs that I coach came up through corporate America and worked for various companies and they do very well. I don't know if it's generational wealth. So you're right. And and it takes two very different skill sets. The entrepreneurial skill set, right, is not going to be happy working for in a big hierarchical bureaucratic organization. Um, but you're absolutely right that I learned that my father worked for General Motors his whole career and he had so many offers to go out. He was brilliant. He was a brilliant connector, brilliant in sales, made the money so much, made the company so much money. He was in finance and um, and he just wasn't willing to take the risk to go out on his own. He was a true company man and to this day will only drive General Motors cars. And I had to get permission recently to finally not buy a General Motors car because he's a company man. Now, does he have gener- generational wealth? No, <laughs> absolutely not. You don't, right, when you work for the man. At least that's how I, I've learned it. He's like, all right, you know, sign here, do this, fill out this form, and then you can get this other car that you're looking at. Correct. That's too funny. Um, Working through the ranks, like you mentioned, let's say maybe there's somebody that's like 35 years old and they're they're slowly starting to get into management, but they want to, they're at a bigger company and they want to work up to COO or CEO one day. What advice would you have them based on maybe the skill sets and stuff that you see some of these leaders have today? Yeah, the leaders who end up failing and getting pushed out of their organizations are just not good people leaders and mm. they're really, and they micromanage and control. So those are the two things that I have found that, that are the kiss of death 
um, you don't get to the highest level if you are a micromanager and you control because then that creates a stifling environment. Any business that is innovative makes more money. When you're a leader who is controlling and wants to micromanage everything, you stifle people so that they don't want to take risks because they know that you're going to question or you're going to be mad. Um, and, and if you don't want to ask a question that might seem stupid, then you're ultimately not going to be an innovative company. So I think those are the two, two downfalls. So the things the opposite to do is empower. So build trust, build connection, and empower your people and say, I trust you. You're going to make some mistakes. You know what movie I just saw, Chris, which was great about this topic? AIR, A-I-R with um, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. It's about oh. Phil Knight and Nike and signing Michael Jordan. Fabulous movie that really um, showcases a lot of what we're talking about right now, not necessarily connection, but about um, taking risks mm. and how hard it is to be innovative and take risks um, and to build a culture that will allow you to do that, you know, and, and they had, you got to give it to Phil Knight because even though that was hard for him, he finally said to Sonny, Okay, if you think that this is the way to go, then sign Michael Jordan. And boy, was that a deal of a lifetime. Oh, yeah. I know. That's that's crazy to think what would happen if that didn't happen type of thing. So um, how can companies build core values? Yeah, so whenever I, I just was working with a company recently, I said, well, what are your core values? And they said, we don't have any. I said, well, you have them but you just haven't posted them on the walls yet. So that's what I'm doing. I'm collecting data and saying, if nice. you, you know, I'm talking to all the leaders in the company, if there are three values that you think represent this company, what are they? And if you ask enough people, then you end up getting it to about the top three. And then you not just plaster it all over your company, your core values are, that's how you interview. You interview based on core values. So you attract talent. You then evaluate their performance based on core values right? You then, that's how you, you retain them. Um, and that's how you ask them to leave if they're not living the core values. So core values are incredibly important to a company culture. Yeah, I agree. I love that you mentioned the interview side too. It's, it's, I think people forget that one sometimes to make sure that you bring those up in the conversation. I would even teach my, my freshman students when I, when I taught freshman business communication, I'd put up on the whiteboard, the systems theory. I said, I want you just to think about if it, you know, what is the goal of, we, we did Zappos forever when it was, you know, before Amazon bought oh, yeah. them for a billion dollars, when they were like the, the darling child Zappos. And I said, okay, so, so what is the goal of Zappos? That's the output. Okay. Well, what's the input throughput? Think of it like a system, input, throughput, output. If you're trying to get X number of dollars or be number one in the field of shoes, online shoes, then you have to hire the right people. How do you hire the right people? Based on what? What kind of questions? I mean, it all goes together, company culture, right? Yeah, I love that. So I know we're wrapping up. What, what would be some final advice uh, that you want to give some of the listeners out there? Just take time. Um, connection is one of those things that absolutely now the research shows it drives results and it's counterintuitive because so many of my leaders say, Michelle, I just need to get to business. We have so much on our agenda. What do you mean I need to do an offsite every quarter with my people? What do you mean I need to start a meeting asking them about them as people? So what's counterintuitive is they want to go fast, but in order to go fast, you've got to slow down in the beginning, build that connection, embed that connection into the way that you communicate and the way that you lead, and then the results will come. I like that. And it's those extra milestones is going to create a lot more of an efficient 
company because you're going to have a very happy and productive workforce by going the extra mile. Correct. Well said, Chris. I like it. I feel like I learned like a whole semester's worth of leadership information on this. This is awesome. Um, wh- where can people connect with you? I know you got your book. I know you got some social yeah. media presence. Where can people connect? Oh, I would love to hear from them. I have a contact form. Let me know what you think. Let me know your ideas of how to build a culture of connection. I would love that. Michelle with two L's, K uh, Johnston.com. So it's Michelle K Johnston.com. Perfect. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for being a guest on today's show. Thank you so much, Chris. That was great. Loved it. Take care. Well, that's it, everyone. Thanks again for taking the time to tune into this week's episode of Next Level Minds. Be sure to connect with Michelle on her website. Be sure to check out her book, The Seismic Shift in Leadership. Other than that, I hope everyone has a fantastic week ahead.